Step into the right pub in Perth, Australia, on a Monday early in October. That's Nobel Prize announcement day, and you'll find two laureates catching up over fish and chips and a couple of beers. It's an annual tradition that Dr. Barry Marshall and Dr. Robin Warren started before they won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2005 for their discovery of the bacterium Helicobacter pylori, or H. pylori, and its causative role in gastritis and peptic ulcers. This year marks a milestone anniversary for Dr. Marshall. 35 years ago, over Easter weekend in April of 1982, he cultured H. pylori from patients with gastritis and ulcers for the first time. This was after Dr. Warren, who was a pathologist, observed the previously unknown spiral-shaped bug in stomach-lining biopsies. Before their discovery, it was dogma that the stomach was a sterile environment and that stress caused ulcers. I'm Jennifer Abbasi, senior staff writer at JAMA Medical News. I recently spoke with Dr. Marshall. He's now director of the Marshall Center for Infectious Diseases Research and Training at the University of Western Australia. He's devoted his career to researching the microbe and treating resistant infections. Back in the early 80s, Dr. Marshall and Dr. Warren hypothesized that H. pylori infection, not stress, caused gastritis and peptic ulcer disease. But the idea that an infection could kickstart chronic disease was novel at the time, and it took a decade for Dr. Marshall and Dr. Warren's thinking to be widely accepted. Before the tide turned, and you may have heard this part of the story before, Dr. Marshall drank a dose of H. pylori in 1984 to infect himself and prove their case. Ten years later, the National Institutes of Health recommended using antibiotics to treat ulcers in patients infected with H. pylori. These days, stomach and duodenal ulcers caused by H. pylori often can be cured with one or two short courses of therapy. Dr. Marshall developed two H. pylori diagnostic tests that are still used today. And as knowledge about the bacterium has evolved so has the understanding of its role in other diseases and conditions like stomach cancer and malt lymphoma. But let's start at the beginning. Dr. Marshall, before your discovery, why did physicians think stress caused peptic ulcers? There were many published papers looking at patients with ulcers, and they could show that, especially with duodenal ulcer, there was an increased range of acid secretion. For instance, uh, it was as if the normal distribution had an extra tail on it of high secretors, and people with duodenal ulcers tended to be shifted to the high end of the normal distribution. And no one really knew what the cause of that was, and so the idea that stress caused ulcers was easy to uh, accept, and nobody really challenged it. And so that had been the assumed cause for about at least 50, probably 100 years. It was a great explanation because people really didn't have the tools necessary to look at the cellular physiology very well. People hadn't done enough careful examinations on uh, normal volunteers or people with ulcers. That was just starting, so there was sporadic bits of evidence. But in general, there was like a 50-year history of entrenched belief that stress caused ulcers. So the idea was that stress somehow increased acid in the stomach and led to ulcers? That's true. There were some studies around which seemed to support it. There was probably also an incredible publication bias so that if you had something that supported the stress idea, you could get it published. 
Whereas if you had something that really came out with a negative result, it would never get published, never see daylight. So back then, how were ulcers being treated? Prior to 1977, ulcers were treated with antacids and anticholinergics, so they could perhaps take the edge off some of the acid secretion, but there were a lot of side effects. Ulcers were also being treated then with H2 blockers. So you could show that you could heal ulcers with acid reduction, so that was fantastic for ulcer patients who had really suffered a lot and were always facing surgery. But the enthusiasm was waning a bit because it was found that as soon as you stopped taking H2 blockers, your ulcer would nearly always come back. So all the patients who'd started on H2 blockers, say in the late 70s, were now sort of heading towards the surgeon and some of those people really ended up having a miserable existence with no appetite, all kinds of GI problems related to the removal of parts of their stomach. So you famously drank a brew of H. pylori cultured from a patient. So what drove you to do this? Well, the great majority of people connected with the ulcer treatment, gastroenterologists and surgeons, really ignored the observation that the bacteria were in the stomach. Uh, And at that time, it seemed obvious that we needed to have a human volunteer, and I chose to do it myself at that point. It sounds a bit extreme, and I was actually quite embarrassed by it because you don't normally experiment on yourself, and I recognised that it was an unscientific thing to do, but uh, I drank the bacteria, and then I had this illness which surprised me because I never ever saw a person with acute helicobacter infection. Nobody who had an ulcer could remember when they caught the helicobacter. I was thinking, that well, it must be asymptomatic. You catch it from somewhere. And then the rest of your life you have this ulcer. So my original thoughts were wrong. I had a vomiting illness lasting several days in the second week after taking the bacteria. And biopsies showed that I was significantly infected with helicobacter and had severe inflammation of the stomach, exactly as what we would see in the worst case of peptic ulcer disease. Although I did not develop an ulcer. And I put together a hypothesis that the natural history of peptic ulcer disease was like every infectious disease. You catch it when you're a very small child, but unlike most diseases, it stays with you and slowly damages the wall of the stomach and affects your acid secretion and eventually, probably when you're an adult sometime, the damage becomes sufficient to cause acid breakthrough and then you get a peptic ulcer. So that was the hypothesis I developed and it was largely correct. So it took about 10 years before people accepted it. So what turned that around? There was an experience in the US in the 80s with a new thing, which was large double-blind clinical trials. And that was really driven by the FDA. And so uh, there was experimentation on different treatments. One of the treatments that came up was Pepto-Bismol, because I had found that bismuth had been used for a couple of hundred years for treating ulcers, and everybody thought it was just a fancy antacid. But in fact, it suppressed H. pylori so much that effectively while you were taking it, you could go into remission. So in the United States, people started using uh, combinations of Pepto-Bismol with antibiotics and there were double-blind studies, particularly in Houston with Dr. David Graham, his group. They were just seeing this miraculous change when they treated people with the antibiotic-Bismol combinations and things started taking off then. 
So today, do we think that stress has anything to do with ulcers? I think it's very minimal, and maybe it affects um, compliance with treatment. But in my particular study, I did a double-blind study, and I particularly sought out people who said they were totally stressed. I had people who had given up their careers and retired early, people who were smokers, really typical in quotes, ulcer personalities. These people did brilliantly when you treated for helicobacter and eradicated the bacteria. So I've never given stress any credence. Now, there are a few papers out there where they have found a small component which you could say was related to psychologic factors or stress, but I don't know of any good double-blind study that showed stress was important. Have you seen the updated American College of Gastroenterology clinical guidelines for H. pylori treatment? Yeah, I was reassured because pretty much it shows what I know. There's a bit of detail in there more related to the U.S. scene and I think it's quite an optimistic article by people who I know have been in the helicobacter scene for 20 or even 30 years. Uh, So I think I agree with pretty much everything there. So how has treatment for peptic ulcers evolved since the days of the stress hypothesis? So we've spoken about stress and acid, so it was focused on lowering acid and also treating the stress if you needed to do something else in a difficult case. Some people were even put on antidepressant and modified their lifestyle. Nowadays, we would decide whether the patient has a cancer risk. So if the patient is a US-born person uh, below the age of 50, the cancer risk would be rather low. You would go ahead and test the patient for helicobacter with a serology or a breath test and give the patient a 10-day course of antibiotics. Antibiotics combined with a proton pump inhibitor? Yes. So at about 1990, AstraZeneca was rolling out omeprazole. So people started thinking about why is the treatment for helicobacter so difficult? It was decided that most of the antibiotics were really designed to get into the pH of 6 or they're only slightly acidic areas like urine, kidney, lung. Nobody had ever designed antibiotics to be active in the stomach. Then somebody in Sweden said, well, hang on a minute, why don't we use this new PPI, omeprazole, and combine it with the amoxicillin? So that immediately bumped the cure rate up to about 50% just with two drugs. And so clarithromycin, amoxicillin, and PPI were rolled out in the late 90s as the top treatment, and you could have 80 to 90% cure rate. So it was pretty magical by the end of the 90s. All of a sudden, all the severe chronic cases were treated very quickly in a few years. Uh, and then uh, treatment now has changed a little bit in that those combinations, which were locked in about the year 2000, are still being used. They're not as effective. So the cure rate might have dropped now to 75 to 85% with the three drug combinations. So some of the older treatments have been resurrected in different ways. And this paper says, well, if you've used one combination, then if the patient's still positive for helicobacter and you're going to treat the patient again, you wouldn't use the same drugs. You would switch over to some other antibiotics 
and you might even switch away from the amoxicillin and replace that, say, with bismuth and uh, even uh, combinations with tetracycline. So even if they have a resistant organism, the second-line treatments also have very high cure rates and it's unusual for us to actually have a patient who we cannot eradicate H. pylori from. Dr. Marshall, in February, the World Health Organization included H. pylori on its list of antibiotic-resistant priority pathogens for which new antibiotics are needed. Are you concerned about the rise of antibiotic-resistant H. pylori? I've thought about this a lot, and my practice has really been the treatment of antibiotic-resistant H. pylori and failed patients for the past 20 years now. So I'm not concerned about it because I know it can be dealt with, but I know people who don't have access to a more specialised treatment process. So the strategy is that in each, say, state, you need one or two experts who can offer that service if the family doctor doesn't have a success with one or two treatments. Certainly with two failed treatments, it's time to send the patient on. Um, they would come in and have an endoscopy and have some biopsies, have some cultures, and then have a personalized precision medicine type therapy using exactly the antibiotics and combinations that we know are going to work on that organism with a proper follow-up. And with that sort of strategy, you end up with about a 99% cure rate. Now you've developed two widely used diagnostic tests for H. pylori. So what are you working on developing these days? The new thing about helicobacter is, arose when people started thinking about the fact that humans have been infected with helicobacter for hundreds of thousands of years. And so the question is, why did that happen? Maybe there's some reason in evolution why humans and helicobacter have lived together for so long and probably the whole human race was infected with the bacterium. Maybe there was a beneficial effect somehow in helicobacter. And then uh, recently, well, about 10 years ago in studies in New York, they showed that children with helicobacter were less susceptible to allergic disease such as asthma. So they cut down the amount of asthma by 40% at least. And uh, going ahead with the development of a sort of a, a prebiotic or probiotic type product based on helicobacter, which could potentially be something to give to small children in very allergic families. So I'm quite excited about it and uh, I think that probably three years from now we'll see some significant data coming out from clinical trials and uh, we're progressing on that at the moment. Now, Chinese researchers have recently reported on an experimental vaccine with 72% efficacy against H. pylori infection in children. Are you enthusiastic that a vaccine is possible? That vaccine would go a long way to helping eradicate H. pylori more quickly in areas where it's endemic or where it's very common, so in parts of China. But there's a caveat to this, though. Um, you're never totally immune to it, uh, even when you have very high antibody levels. Uh, so it's going to be hard work to make a really effective helicobacter vaccine. The strategy, though, at the current time is just to try to improve the level of hygiene and the standard of living in uh, places where there's a lot of helicobacter. Dr. Marshall, shifting subjects a bit, how did winning a Nobel Prize change things for you? Um, winning the Nobel Prize means that you are 
vindicated if you have a controversial area, so that's very reassuring. And it also means that you can become a spokesperson for science and medicine and hopefully continue to publicise the area that you're doing the research in. However, the most exciting thing about winning a Nobel Prize is making the discovery and being able to cure people who have had a lifelong chronic disease. So every doctor would aspire to that. But uh, connecting up with Helicobacter and developing diagnostic tests and treatments for it, I could see that I was amplifying my capacity to be curing thousands and ultimately millions of people and changing their lives. Uh, So uh, that's far more satisfying probably in the long term than uh, just winning the Nobel Prize. I'd already had the rewards as far as I was concerned. So there you have it, the story of H. pylori. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Abbasi with JAMA Medical News. For more podcasts, visit us at jamanetworkaudio.com. You can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher.